The story of Plymouth Colony is one that exists in sharp contrast to that of Jamestown. Instead of a place no Englishman had ever visited, Cape Cod had been one of the most popular North American destinations. The investors who would back the mission weren't the best business minds in the kingdom. They were a group of people looking for any venture that might help them survive financially. Instead of being given a set of strict instructions from a top-down company, settlers were given a patent and left alone to fund and govern it. And the Indian civilization they encountered was one on the brink of destruction, not an empire at the height of its strength. Perhaps the biggest difference of all, though, was its settlers. They weren't a group of individuals vying for control. Their core was a group of people insular enough that they rarely questioned their leadership once elected, and who had voluntarily remained insular to the point of isolation, even while living in one of Europe's biggest cities. They were neither gentlemen nor servants, but a group of people in the middle, artisans and farmers. Like those who colonized Jamestown, they didn't have colonization experience, but Unlike those in Virginia, they had very little life experience. Many had never ventured beyond the Yorkshire-Nottinghamshire border before leaving for Leiden. And instead of a subtle Catholic bias, these people were Brownists, and to fully understand them, we first need to explore both what Brownism was and what it meant in particular to a troubled rural area at the turn of the 17th century. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvala, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. Brownism was named for Robert Brown, a Puritan separatist preacher in the 1580s. He wasn't the first of his kind, but he was his movement's most visible agitator. He was from an affluent family who had made their fortune exporting wool to Europe and who had become the political leaders of their town. He was related to the Cecils, and it's probably for this reason that while he was arrested 32 times, he was never seriously prosecuted. He went to Cambridge and quickly came to embrace the most radical of Puritan ideas, and when he graduated, he toured East Anglia, the heart of Puritan England, delivering extremely provocative sermons. He angered the authorities, and then he would turn around, switch sides, and anger his supporters, too. East Anglia was the home of towns like Norwich and Suffolk, which were part of a broader international network of deeply Calvinist sea towns from La Rochelle in France to Gdansk in Poland, and, of course, the Netherlands. Pockets of Dutch weavers also inhabited these towns, and they helped to bring Puritan literature printed in the Netherlands into England. Brown partnered with exiled Huguenots like Jean Morley and Philippe de Mornay, and printed tracts which would serve as the basis of the Brownist movement, and also of Plymouth Colony specifically. Among their tenets was that in any Christian assembly, authority belonged to the people as a whole, free to vote, hire, and fire their ministers without a hierarchy of bishops 
or a national code or religious laws. They compared a true church to Athenian democracy, with each congregation free to believe and worship as it chose. They also said that true believers shouldn't share communion with people who weren't part of the Calvinist elect. The 1580s provided a unique opportunity for this movement to grow for a couple of reasons. First, in that middle class of society between gentlemen and workers, literacy had doubled in the course of a generation. For the first time ever, a majority of people in the Eastern English yeoman classes could now read, and it was from this group that many brownists came. They weren't peasants, paupers, servants, or the poor, and they weren't old noble families. They were self-employed men in skilled trades, lower in social rank than people like Brown himself, but also people with a solid financial future, the opportunity to get rich, and oftentimes with some political control in their towns. The movement grew with each Elizabethan battle against the Catholics, especially the sinking of the Armada, after which anonymous pamphlets were written calling for the kind of deeper reformation that the Puritans in Parliament had been advocating. If literacy was at an all-time high, though, by the 1580s, religious life in England was at an all-time low. Four decades after Henry's dissolution of the monasteries, over 80% of English congregations had never heard a sermon before. There simply weren't enough educated preachers to fill even 20% of England's parishes. By the end of Elizabeth's reign, they'd found educated preachers for about half of England's parishes. This was an impressive increase over the course of just two decades, and they'd done this by making the main purpose of the universities to produce clergymen. Brown was one of these clergymen, as were two young men named John Robinson and John Smith, no relation to the Jamestown figure. As the universities struggled to produce clergy, and the Church of England limped along with readings from the English Book of Common Prayer, the seeds of dissent were starting to grow. We discussed in the prologue series how the Reformation had occurred in England and the kind of socio-economic tensions involved. And as the Anglican Church limped along, a decent portion of the population was also growing in their own ideas. Catholic recusants worshipped in secret masses conducted in individuals' houses, and on the other side, the Puritans began to organize and take over and purge the church of all previous Catholic influences. They weren't unique because they were Calvinists, they were unique because they were actively working to transform the Anglican Church into one that adhered to the Continental model, and to purge everything that differed from it. They had supporters like Walsingham, who were close to the Queen, giving them some sense of safety, and no one agitated more ceaselessly than the Brownists. The agitation reached a head when a Suffolk church was vandalized with a message comparing Elizabeth to the whore of Babylon. 
that was distinctly not considered okay, and while Cecil yet again protected Brown, who briefly slipped away into the Netherlands, in response to the event, Elizabeth sent William Bancroft, the future Archbishop of Canterbury, to investigate political agitation in the area. Brown's books were banned and burned, save for one which Bancroft himself kept and read and which still exists in the library at Canterbury today. Five ministers and 40 other people were con convicted of nonconformity, and two people caught distributing the books were hanged. But Bancroft began to read about the Brownists at this point in time. Bancroft himself was an evangelical and someone whose penchant for speaking his mind had caused him to be passed over for promotion to bishop for most of his life. But he wasn't someone who spoke ignorantly. He wanted to understand people, and now he wanted to understand the Brownists. He read everything that Brown, Moray, Morley, and Barrow wrote, and he came to a conclusion. Bancroft decided that separatism was a spiteful and hypocritical concept, and one which would introduce devastating divisions into England. It would lead to endless division of denominations, and the sects would begin to squabble over petty issues. The denominational conflict, he said, would lead to civil war and then either anarchy or dictatorship. Denial of the monarch's supremacy would lead to an armed rebellion against the king or queen, and because England was a place with pre-existing inequalities, taking away the hierarchy of the church would only put the poor at the mercy of the rich, and independent local churches wouldn't be able to stand up to the rich either. The monarch, meanwhile, would be powerless to intervene on the side of fairness, Bancroft also noted that the people pushing hardest for change were also the landowners who were oppressing the poor. Both Bancroft and his Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, a man named John Whitgift, were dedicated evangelical Protestants who had stood fast to their beliefs even when they weren't popular. They weren't Catholics, and in fact Whitgift had remained a defiant Protestant during the reign of Mary Tudor. They just had a very troubling prediction of what Brownism would lead to, and in reality, they pretty much nailed it. A couple years later, an investigation into a separate affair led Bancroft to discover that the leading mainstream Puritan, named Thomas Cartwright, was working to build a parallel church, which he would ultimately use to take over the church from England and make it adhere to the Presbyterian model. This was revolutionary sedition, and Bancroft, in response, pushed for a ban on private religious gatherings, which he got. So at its core, Brownism wasn't just a religious movement. It was a form of severe political agitation. 130 miles northwest of Norwich, though, it had a different meaning and motivation. Yes, there were still the hardcore political agitators and the Puritan organizers, but in a rural piece of land on the border of Nottinghamshire and Yorkshire, known as the Quadrilateral, 
the realities of life were very, very different, and this led to a different flavor of Puritanism. This area was a deeply rural place, known as the most troubled area in all of England during James and Elizabeth's reign. It was out of reach of either the powerful men in Yorkshire or those in London. It was crime-ridden, and there was twice the national rate of children born out of wedlock. There was adultery, there was drunkenness, and there was brutal local government. William Brewster's father had been accused of lechery, and even the attempt to repair the local parish church, which had been deteriorating since the dissolution of the monasteries, turned into a brawl. Before the dissolution of the monasteries, a well-liked Catholic soldier named Thomas Baron Darcy had been lord of the manor at one of the region's bigger towns. But he had participated in the Pilgrimage of Grace, and when the Lascelles, a local family with ambitions of their own, reported Darcy's participation, Darcy was beheaded and they were given all his money, land, and power. As you'd imagine, people who got power that way didn't use it honorably, and decades later, George LaSalle's grandson was behaving as he once had. He beat up a preacher in the streets and was brought to court for trying to force his female employees to have sex in exchange for money. There was only one local family strong enough to try to stand up to him, and they were in and out of court repeatedly over the course of years. When the church stepped in to try to help the rival family end the domination, Lascelles killed the family's hawk and stole their dog, and they ended up in court yet again. In such an environment, you can see the appeal of trying to pull away and find some level of independence, and for that you had two choices, Catholicism and Puritanism. Being a Catholic was a much, much harder route. If you saw the show Gunpowder, the execution of the old woman was essentially a true story, but it happened in Yorkshire in the 1580s, not 1605. Elizabeth had sent an anti-Puritan evangelical to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, but she sent a dedicated Calvinist and a friend of the Cecils to be Archbishop of York. In a letter to William Cecil, this Archbishop said that the Yorkists were popish, stupid, ignorant, and stubborn, and that he intended to convert them. So, Catholics were fined, they were killed, new clergy and schools were imposed on them, and meanwhile, even if what the Puritans and Separatists did was technically illegal, the archbishop turned a blind eye to it. He didn't care about nonconformity unless Catholics were involved. There was a lot of Catholicism in the area, and in fact, some of the pilgrims, like William Bradford, had Catholic family members. But if you weren't specifically dedicated to Catholicism, and you just wanted a place to worship peacefully and away from the tyranny of men like Lascelles, Puritanism was a much, much safer option. And it's in this 
era that we can start to see Puritanism begin to grow in this area. It had a core of strong advocates like William Brewster and a very favorable environment. Brewster was the nephew of the mayor of the Puritan town of Hull, and through this connection he had started to work for Elizabeth's Secretary of State, William Davidson. Davidson was soon scapegoated for the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, and within two years, he was sent to prison and Brewster was sent back home. Brewster was a known Puritan who had helped fight Catholicism, though, so he was deemed trustworthy enough to take over his father's position as postmaster. By the time James took the throne, there was a relatively strong Puritan presence in the region. In the early 1600s, the strongest Puritan defenders began to die, though. First Leicester and Walsingham, then Elizabeth, and four years later, her Archbishop of York. On the other side of the divide, so did Whitgift, but James replaced him with Bancroft. True to his style, James was much more openly hostile to the Puritans than Elizabeth had ever been. He published two books attacking Puritans and Brownists, echoing Bancroft's ideas with much more inflammatory wording. They were pests, a diseased and evil sort. They were dividing his kingdom, which should be unified. And while the Brownists were the biggest problem, they were only putting into practice universal Puritan ideas. James didn't step up a campaign of violence, though. Instead, he allowed Bancroft to create a set of laws to deter Puritan activities. He required full acceptance of the prayer book, sealed off loopholes in laws and regulations, required parish church wardens to report separatism, and at the same time tried to repair the church with an evangelical bent. Bancroft himself was evangelical, but this would also have the effect of making people less likely to look for Puritan alternatives to the established church. So now clergymen were barred from taverns and gambling, and every church was required to have a pulpit. He couldn't get his regulations through Parliament because Puritan sympathizers would likely oppose them, so the regulations were never fully legal and were then opposed by Puritan lawyers, and in addition, the Archdiocese of York didn't put the canons into effect until a couple years later, which gave Northern English Puritans time to build a wider movement. Eventually, though, they did take hold, and people who refused to accept the prayer book were purged from the Church of England. Two of the purged ministers were John Robinson and John Smith. After being purged from the established church, Robinson and Smith became the preachers of the Scrooby Congregation of Puritan Separatists that met at William Brewster's old manor house. Both had gone to Cambridge as sizers, or poor but promising students who were allowed to attend in exchange for doing chores for richer students. Both had done well and gone on to prestigious positions elsewhere. 
Robinson was the deputy to the minister at St. Andrew's Church in Norwich, a relatively wealthy city famous for its Puritanism, and Smith got a teaching post at Lincoln. Robinson was a quiet person who, prior to the purge, had never drawn attention to himself or engaged in excessive politics, and Smith was more actively combative and political, openly and personally insulting the people who opposed Puritan reforms in Lincoln, like restricting the amount of beer sold in the city. Smith was also more radical, questioning things like the value of repeating the Lord's Prayer, which at this point in time wasn't just used in sermons, but also as a blessing over any stressful situation. Still, in 1605, both ended up back home, and they started exploring their options. Smith tried becoming a teacher and a doctor, but was banned from both those professions too, and meanwhile both he and Robinson read tracts by Brown and his colleagues. Persuaded by the arguments, and with no future career in the established church, they stepped outside the bounds of the law and started a separatist congregation. They met at Brewster's old manor house every Sunday, and formed the heart of a rapidly growing movement throughout the region. For two years, they worshipped peacefully with a huge range of people attending their services, some drawn by Robinson's quiet piety, and others by Smith's brashness. All were trying to escape their troubled surroundings, but in 1607, economic pressure led to a revolt. It was a purely economic revolt against the continued enclosures and rising rents and hay prices, but it was in a religiously charged time, and people assumed that the rising had something to do with either Catholicism or separatism, though they weren't sure which. For the new Archbishop of York, though, that was perfect. He'd go after Catholics and separatists alike. First, he went after the Catholics, who were required to take an oath of allegiance. Dozens of pages of records of Catholic arrest warrants still exist in the High Commission archives. Only a handful of Brownists were arrested, though. In one session, 60 Catholics were tried and 14 imprisoned, whereas only four Brownists faced a similar fate. The Brownists were the people who were politically active. They used their arrests to attack the legal authority of the Anglican Church and to attack it in a way that, if they won, would strengthen Parliament, reduce royal prerogative, and have wide-ranging implications for English politics and law as a whole. Catholics were considered heretics, but the separatists who were arrested were the individuals who were considered political provocateurs, and one in particular, named Gervais Neville, was well-educated, well-connected, and very successfully aiming his political arrows at the heart of Jacobian politics. Neville escaped charges, and the courts began sealing the records of any hearing involving a Brownist or Catholics who tried to oppose the court. 
Neville left for Holland, published a book, and then returned and was imprisoned for sedition. Neville was a member of the Scrooby congregation, though, and this drew the attention of the authorities toward Robinson and Smith's flock. They issued an arrest warrant for Brewster and another man named Richard Jackson, but both had vanished. The two were fined 20 pounds, which was the penalty imposed on Catholics who didn't show up to court to answer charges. This was a big, big deal. It marked a change and it sent a message. Separatists were no longer safe. They'd watched Catholics suffer for 20 years. And if the separatists were going to start facing what the Catholics had faced, they needed to start protecting themselves. They even worried about execution, which was in reality unlikely to affect separatists who were Protestants and therefore not considered heretics. But still, it was a big step in a dangerous direction, and the Scrooby congregation decided that it was time to leave England. Thomas Hells was the son of a man who had gotten rich investing in real estate, and he had helped Brewster build the area's Puritan network. Legally, legally, English people needed a permit to go overseas, but the Scrooby congregation knew that as separatists, they were unlikely to get such a permit. So Hells got a boat and they unsuccessfully tried to slip across the channel to Holland. They were caught, but Cecil came to their aid and decided to let them go. And soon they'd made it across the English channel. Soon after reaching Amsterdam, They split up just as Bancroft had predicted. Hells was the first to go. He was extreme enough to make Bradford and the rest of the future pilgrims uncomfortable. He ended up returning to England and dying in a London prison in 1614 after being accused of sedition. Next, Smith and Robinson split. Smith had adopted the most radical Protestant view of the time. Anabaptism, and ultimately went on to found the Baptist movement in the English-speaking world. And Robinson took a hundred people to found a new congregation away from the Amsterdam factionalism in Leiden. And for ten years, Robinson tried to guide his congregation, though he himself started to see the negatives of Brownism. Brownists in England had a double reputation at the time. On the one hand, they were seen as enthusiastic and creative, but on the other hand, they were seen as being very bitter. As they built their new church in Leiden, Robinson started to see the bitterness emerge, as well as anger, arrogance, and a judgmental attitude. These were people who had separated themselves from ungodliness, but Robinson hoped to have a core of people who could encourage godliness, and instead he was watching his congregation grow to resent the people around them and look down on the unsaved. So he started encouraging them to join other people, even to the extent of encouraging them to occasionally attend other churches. 
He himself acted as the chaplain to the English regiments in the Netherlands. Most English authorities in the Netherlands were sympathetic to Puritanism, so even when asked by Bancroft to curtail activities like the printing of seditious books to send back to England, the authorities let Robinson's congregation do as they pleased. The problem with Leiden was again economic. The pilgrims easily found work doing manual labor, but the work itself was much harder than than they were used to in their agricultural life in England. They were at the bottom of the social hierarchy with no chance of becoming prosperous. There was no social mobility and there was no financial security. The work was seven days a week and there were no seasons off like winter in England. The diet was poor and the children were forced to work too, as well as being at risk of losing their English identity. There was so little hope for their future that they also worried that the children might turn to crime or become sailors, and the city was a big, intimidating, and no more religious than the quadrilateral had been. In fact, they were required to work on the Sabbath and violate their own beliefs. There was a riot at Delft, and a few months later, there was another one in Leiden, again motivated by economic factors. In addition, the Thirty Years' War loomed on the horizon, and if violence broke out between Spain and the Netherlands, they would find themselves on the front lines. They were quite literally on the outskirts of society, making their home in a row of little houses at the edge of town. And it was a society that was even less forgiving than the one they had just left. They started to consider the new world. On the one hand, that was a daunting prospect. They'd heard the stories of Cassin and Ratcliffe's deaths. There had also been a group of separatists who had famously died en route to Virginia. The Dutch offered to let them settle in Middleburg, which is a more agricultural city, but it was also one that was closer to the Spanish border. Going across the Atlantic ultimately seemed like the thing to do. So they reached out to Edwin Sands with their seven articles declaring their beliefs. Sands praised their document and promised to help, and he connected them to John Wollstoneholm, a member of the Virginia Company, as well as of Smythe's magazine. Wollstoneholm was happy to help. He was a devout Christian, though not a Puritan, and he worked to get the pilgrims to go to Virginia. He wanted to strengthen the English presence in North America, and he knew that they needed more settlers for that. He brought in a man named Folk, who was a member of James's Privy Council, and Greville, who was a part of the War Party and a very close associate of George Villiers, the notorious Duke of Buckingham. And then they brought in Robert Naunton, James's future Secretary of State. And together, this group of people formed the core of advocates for the pilgrims in Virginia. It was Naunton who convinced James to let the pilgrims go to America. 
saying that they were harmless and that it would cost nothing to let them go since they planned to support themselves by fishing. To this, James famously replied, So God have my soul, tis an honest trade. Twas the apostle's own calling. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to firsthand accounts and things. See you next week.